Well, we are continuing on in our fall sermon series uh, on looking carefully and closely at the Sermon on the Mount. Early on in the uh, public ministry of Jesus, just after he calls his first disciples, Jesus begins teaching and he begins healing. At the end of Matthew 4, uh, we find out that Jesus' fame is spread throughout all Syria and Galilee because he's been teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the crowds are gathering, and Jesus' popularity is increasing wherever he goes. And people are coming from everywhere to follow him, to listen to him, and to sit at his feet, and to be part of the kingdom that he is promising to bring. And Jesus' response to his growing ministry is to sit on a mountain near Galilee and to preach and to teach. And he's primarily teaching the disciples, but certainly there are large crowds that are listening in. They are within earshot. And these are the people that he's already healed. These are the people he's rescued. These are the people that he has saved. And so the order of events is important in understanding and applying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for us because first, Jesus rescues. First, he saves, and then he instructs. Just like in the Exodus, God first rescued Israel out of Egypt, and then he gave them the Ten Commandments. So now the Sermon on the Mount isn't a list of moral imperatives for how we get right with God. They're instructions that Jesus gives to his people for how we ought to live in the world and be ambassadors for his kingdom. So he's gathering these people and describing to them life in the kingdom of God, its future hope, but also its present reality. And he's answering this question, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? Two weeks ago, we saw that for Jesus to live meant to be ambassadors of his kingdom. It means to live as salt and light. And now he goes further in this sermon, and as he goes further, Jesus gets very, very practical. He starts talking about murder and lust and marriage and divorce and anxiety and money. See, what we'll learn as we go further into the Sermon on the Mount is that the kingdom of God isn't just a theoretical or theological concept or just some sort of abstract set of beliefs, but they are a practical reality that is to be lived out in every aspect of our lives. And the first practical issue Jesus tackles is anger. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. It's in your bulletin. It's also on page 810 of your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it has been said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Our great God and heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open up our hearts Open our ears and our eyes so that we would hear and see, but open our hearts that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your Son. 
Lord, we gather uh, this morning, um, all of us having to wrestle on some level with anger. Anger at ourselves, anger at uh, our neighbors, anger at those that we love. And so would you guide and direct us so that we would know how to live as those who are offering reconciliation and peace to those around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think one of the primary questions of our age, and really any age throughout human history, has been what do we do with our anger? We all, we have, we all have options, right? We could, you, do we embrace our anger and let it drive our passions and our productivity, right? Somehow harness our anger for our own ends? Or do we suppress it when it starts to bubble up? Because our anger will, while perhaps for, for some an opportunity for good, can oftentimes simply take over our lives. So do we avoid it at all costs? Because anger can cause such destruction in our world and in our relationships. Well, this is a question that, has, like I said, has been asked in every age and in every place. In fact, you don't get very far in the Bible, only four chapters in, Genesis chapter 4, before you, the Bible starts dealing with Cain's anger at his brother Abel that actually leads to murder. That's actually going on in the background. Jesus, I think, has that in mind in the background of this passage in his sermon. So what do we do with our anger? Well, a very modern attempt to answer that question can be found in a current TV show called Beef. It's a show that starts with two strangers who nearly get into a fender bender and their anger and rage very quickly escalate. It's a modern-day exploration of the power of anger, and as the show unfolds, their lives continue to intersect, and their anger gets deeper and more complex. I'm not necessarily recommending the show, but what caught my attention was uh, the New York Times um, uh, television critic, James Poniewozik, who gave, uh, who gave a review of it. And in his review, he actually touches on, I think, the real complexity that we face when it comes to our anger. This is what he said. Their dispute will prove to be the worst thing that has happened to either of them, but in the moment, it is also the best. They fight not just out of pride, but also out of their seeming belief that their rage might somehow make everything right. Among the motifs that Lee Sung Jin weaves through beef is hunger. Danny has his Burger King addiction. He eats like it's his job, straining and puffing, while Amy has a sweet tooth a legacy of her depressed childhood that she has passed on to her daughter, which brings us back to this weird, remarkable show's title. Colloquially, beef means feud. But this series shows you how anger can also, for some people, be meat. It fills an emptiness, it sustains, it momentarily satisfies, even if, in excess, it's terrible for your heart. See, I think he's getting at so much of the danger and the power of anger as he reviews that show. In the moment when we are angry, it seems like our anger might be the best response, might be the best response for us. It's the best thing that could happen to us, even though it's so powerful. And when misplaced, it can actually destroy us and our relationships. And yet we hope that our rage somehow will make everything right. And as our anger grows, we feed on it. We give it life. And even though we know that it's so terrible for our hearts. Well, that's what Jesus is getting at as he addresses the anger, anger in this sermon. It's here that he gives us the answer to our question, well, what do we do with our anger? But before he does that, Jesus re first reveals our hearts, then he reveals God's heart, 
Then he promises to restore our hearts. So first, Jesus reveals our hearts. Jesus first in this passage comes speaking with astonishing authority. As Jesus takes up the topic of murder, he's not doing so arbitrarily. You shall not murder is the sixth commandment. And so he is beginning to address the second half of the Ten Commandments, as he will do now for some time throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But he's, he's, uh, he's addressing the second half of the Ten Commandments that Moses gave on another mountain, on Mount Sinai. So when Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said to those, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry is liable to judgment. He's recapitulating the sixth commandment. And in saying that, Jesus puts himself in the place of God. God had spoken through his law, and now God speaks in his final word. Moses never spoke like this when he gave the Ten Commandments. It was, it was God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but Jesus now speaks with authority. He speaks in a way that Moses simply never did. So here is Jesus, the Messiah, laying out something even greater, a surpassing righteousness that exceeds even the scribes and the Pharisees, as he has just said in verse 19. So Jesus is saying something not only about how we should live in his kingdom, but he's also saying something very important about himself. He's saying that he has the authority. He's been given the authority by God to tell us what is true about ourselves, to tell us how we ought to live, to tell us about ourselves, which is really an outrageous claim, unless, of course, it's true. See, the only way that he could have the right to tell us what to do with our anger, which we all know is so deeply personal to us, But the only way that he has the right to tell us what to do with our anger, if he is the one who has created us, if he is the one who has redeemed us, if he is the one who dwells with us by the power of his spirit, if he is the one who provides for us and protects us, then perhaps he does have something to say about our anger. And so when Jesus says, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, he's reminding us that he has done just that. And so Jesus deepens and fulfills the Old Testament teaching and in doing so, applies it to all of us. And because Jesus knows the human heart, he zeroes in on our anger. But to get to anger, he starts with murder. Murder in Jesus' time, as it is in our day, was relatively uncommon. Murder is not as common when you compare compare it to lying, to stealing, to sexual immorality, to greed. the statistics will show you that they don't even compare. But it still happened enough that the Old Testament law had quite a bit to say about murder. There were plenty of regulations in place to protect human life, and the definitions were very concrete so people could look at themselves and say, as we oftentimes do today, well, I know I did something terrible, but at least, at least I didn't murder. At least I didn't murder anyone. But Jesus exposes the heart and therefore redefines murder. He reveals our hearts because the first problem with anger is that we often look at the person who has made us angry as though they are the problem. So the problem is not in us, it's with someone else. You think the problem is the person who cut you off in traffic. You think the problem is the person that took your seat on the subway. You think the problem is that you have a neighbor whose dog is constantly barking. You think the problem is the cyclists in Central Park who whiz by you as though they're in the Tour de France when you're trying to ride your bike with your kids to church to preach a sermon about anger. (laughs) I'm going to stop. 
I love cyclists. Anyway, you get the point. When we think of our anger, we tend to start outside of us. It's someone else's problem. They're the ones who are making us angry. It's their behavior or something they've said that makes us angry. But Jesus comes to reveal our hearts. And he says that the problem is us. Jesus is always getting to the heart of the matter, so to speak. And he says that all the problems in the world begin in the human heart. And then they work their way outward. And anger is a perfect example. Eugene Peterson, the late pastor and writer, uh, in his commentary on Jonah, who had an anger problem, uh, I think makes a very uh, astute uh, point on anger. This is what Peterson says. Anger is most useful as a diagnostic tool. When anger erupts in us, it is a signal that something is wrong. Something isn't working right. There is evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. Anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. Diagnostically, it is virtually infallible, and we learn to trust it. What anger fails to do, though, is tell us whether the wrong is outside or inside us. We usually begin by assuming the wrong is outside us. Our spouse, our child, or our God has done something wrong, and we are angry. That's what Jonah did. He quarreled with God. But when we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads to a wrong within us, wrong information, inadequate understanding, or an underdeveloped heart. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Our, our oftentimes underdeveloped hearts are exposed when it comes to our anger, our hearts that love to feed off anger, even though it's terrible for us. And see, there are good reasons to be angry, and we'll explore that in a minute, but so oftentimes, if we're honest, the reason we get angry is that we're so busy protecting ourselves and our own little kingdoms. People get in our way. They let us down. Dreams don't come to, to reality. Life doesn't follow the script that we are writing for ourselves. People get on the train before letting you off the train, and we get angry. But beneath that, oftentimes, is something deeper. It's fear. Fear that if we don't protect our dreams and our kingdoms, then no one else will. Who's going to protect you? Who's going to protect you if, we don't, if you don't do it yourself? So we get angry when anything threatens us. And just like in that show, Beef, our anger it fills an emptiness. It offers us the illusion of protection, and therefore it sustains us. When in reality, what anger really does is consume us, it controls us, and it destroys our relationships. And perhaps even more so now, this is true living in the digital age, living online as we all do. Because what captures our attention, what gets clicks, and what keeps our attention are people, images, videos that make us so angry. Anger is what motivates and animates us so oftentimes. And this is why Jesus doesn't dismiss our angry, our angry words against others as shortcomings or as minor flaws. And this is why he says, oh, don't worry about it. It's just, it's just a little bit of anger. Instead, they're subject to the severest of judgments, the fires of hell itself. That's what he says in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That seems a little extreme on Jesus' part. But Jesus has come to reveal our hearts, and he knows what anger does to us. And this is the other problem with anger that Jesus reveals here. Anger never stays in its place. It never stays quietly secluded in our hearts. 
The problem with anger, as Jesus says here, is that it can quickly build and grow and lead to something far more serious. That's why Jesus' instructions here on what to do with anger are, are filled with such urgency. So ask yourself, when you are angry, what are you trying to protect? What or who are you defending? What kingdom are you protecting? If the answer is your kingdom, if the answer is your world, if the answer is your comfort, then it's a good chance that your anger is misplaced. And it will only continue to grow from a smoldering fire to a raging inferno. And so that's why Jesus comes to reveal our hearts. But Jesus hasn't come only to reveal and expose our hearts. He comes to reveal the very heart of God. Oftentimes when we read the Bible as modern readers, we can think, I don't have an anger problem. It's God. He's the one with the anger problem. I mean, he's always so angry. Just read through the Old Testament. That, uh, it always seems to be the case. God seems to be angry or bringing judgment or threatening to bring judgment. And even here in this passage, even in the New Testament, Jesus is talking about judgment and getting a little carried away, isn't he, when he says that if you call someone a fool, you're going to be liable to the hell of fire. Isn't God the angry one? But notice in this passage, as I said earlier, there is a lot of urgency. Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before and the altar and go. In other words, just drop everything. If you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, drop everything you're doing and go. Go to them. There is an urgency to the need for reconciliation. And then in verse 25, he says, quickly come to terms with your brother. There's an urgency to dealing with an angry heart because it can, it can so quickly get out of control. And Jesus knows this and wants us to deal with our anger quickly. But also in this passage, we see the heart of God because the scenario that Jesus is painting for us here is that someone can come to make an offering, make a gift before the Lord, and then leave it to go seek reconciliation and then return and make the offering. In other words, Jesus is revealing a God who is patient, a God whose anger is not out of control, but whose anger is actually rooted in love. And this is really important to understand as we think about our own anger and how we are to live with it. Think of the times when you were angry. What makes you angry is that something you love is being threatened. Sometimes we get angry when things we love, like comfort and control, are threatened. We love the kingdom we're trying to build for ourselves, and so we get angry when people make us late or when we lose our sense of control over a situation. But as our love intensifies, so does our anger. Because when someone you love is hurt, when someone you love is in danger, or when someone you love has really hurt you or experiencing some form of wrong or injustice, well then, our anger intensifies. See, the way to tell what, you really, what it is that you really love is to follow your anger. Because anger and love are so intimately related, which means that anger is not always bad. And this is why God frequently describes himself as angry. Listen to Jeremiah 10, verse 10. But the, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king, and his wrath at his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
or Mark chapter 3, verse 5, and Jesus looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. See, love and anger are so closely related for us and they certainly are so closely related to God. And in this passage, Jesus doesn't just say, don't be angry. He is saying, deal with your anger. Get to the root of it and be careful with it because if left unchecked, it will get out of control. But this is not the case with God. And so because God is love, God can also be angry. And because his love is perfect, his anger is always perfect. God loves justice. He loves mercy. He loves when the poor are taken care of and he becomes angry when they are exploited. He loves when the widow and the orphan are provided for, and he is angry when they are trampled upon and abused. He loves his son, and he wants people to love and worship him, and so he is angry when people choose to build their own kingdoms and to follow after lesser gods. See, God loves us too much to leave us alone. He loves us too much to let us build our own claustrophobic little kingdoms that don't lead to life but actually lead to death. And he gets angry when our anger is misplaced, when our anger actually destroys relationships because he loves us. And he gets angry when we despise and when we hate one another because he loves us. And so when Jesus comes to bring his kingdom, he is revealing the very heart of God. He reveals a God who is love, therefore one whose anger is perfect because of his love. And Jesus also reveals the nature of God's anger. Because of his love, there's one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as we read in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And see, while we sometimes have trouble with God's anger, I think oftentimes we struggle with the fact that God is slow to anger. When we have been wronged or see wrong in the world, oftentimes our anger arises from the fact that we think God ought to be a little more active Okay, if he really did love us, if he is really, is, is really angry at the things that cause us such pain, then why, why not see more, why not do more? So at times we might think, I'm glad God is patient, but is, does he have to be this patient? Maybe he's not angry enough to be at the injustice of the world. Because if he could do something about this injustice, maybe our world would be better off. But this is so much of Jesus' point here on the Sermon on the Mount and what he embodies as the long-awaited king. In Jesus, God has come to bring about the judgment of his kingdom, which promises to right every wrong, which promises to wipe every tear, and he comes to conquer the darkness of the world. But we are called to trust that God is at work, that God sees and he knows, that he is angry at the things that he needs to be angry about, and he will one day finish what he has started in the ministry of Jesus. And that promise ought to shape and inform and direct our anger. So Jesus reveals our hearts, he reveals God's heart, and lastly, he restores our hearts. So back to our question that is before us, what do we do with our anger? Again, there's really two options that we frequently turn to. Uh, We can ignore it and hope it goes away, or we can redirect it either through distraction or busyness, or when we're angry, we try and exercise or try and redirect it somewhere else. But Jesus calls us to something far more beautiful. 
Notice in this passage, the commandment isn't simply don't be angry or get your anger under control. That would leave us with one of those two options. The commandment Jesus gives us here is actually go and be reconciled. That's what he's telling us to do. That is the greater righteousness, not simply avoiding the anger, but acting in a way that actually breaks the cycle of anger that ultimately can lead to murder. That's the redemptive righteousness that Jesus calls us to, and that's why Jesus has to repair our hearts. We can try and avoid anger or avoid people that make us angry, but you can only do that for a little while, and it's kind of impossible in New York City anyway. But Jesus' command to initiate reconciliation with those who we're angry with and who are angry with us requires Jesus to restore our hearts and to reorient our hearts to something far more powerful and far more beautiful. And that is exactly what he's come to do. So what do we do with our anger? We bring our anger and our misplaced and misdirected loves to Jesus. We bring our ravenous desire to rule our own kingdom to Jesus and to lose ourselves in his far more beautiful kingdom. He is the king who rules the heavens and the earth, and so our anger doesn't need to rule over us. He is our king. He is the one who comes to bring peace with his enemies, and so we too can follow our King Jesus and live as peacemakers, pursuing peace no matter the cost, because this is what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus, we see him not only teaching reconciliation, verse 25, but bearing the weight of reconciliation. He's the one who comes to bring judgment, but instead of executing that judgment on us for our misplaced loves, he bears the judgment on himself. Jesus, in his ministry, lives out the very scenario that he's actually painting here for us in verse 25. God has a case against us for our rebellion against him, and it is an airtight case, and he has every right to be angry. And yet, instead of bringing his case to the court, he breaks it off, and he takes the punishment on himself in Jesus so that we can be reconciled with him. And when we become so captivated by that reality that the judgment against us has been given to the one who loves us, then we can become a people of reconciliation. See, only Jesus can repair and restore our hearts. Only he can help us to love what he loves and hate what he hates. We are, in fact, called to be angry, but to be angry at the right things. As Ephesians 4, chapter 6 says, we are to be angry and not sin. It's only as we tear down our kingdoms and follow after his kingdom that we become a people of righteous anger, anger at our own brokenness and sin, anger at the injustice in the world, anger at the darkness that we see in the lives of others and the lives of the world, anger at indifference towards God. But Jesus must repair and restore our hearts and restore us to himself first. And if you want to know how to begin practicing this, if you want to know how to, what to do with your anger, and the place to take it so oftentimes as the place to take so much of our emotions are the Psalms. If you give yourself to the Psalms, they will teach you how to be angry. They give us a, lang- a language for righteous anger as they give words to all of our emotions. But they direct our anger to this God, to the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They direct our anger to this God whose love and anger are perfect. And the Psalms redirect us to Jesus, who promises to repair and to restore our hearts so that we will not be driven by our anger, but rather become the agents of peace 
that Jesus calls us to. Because after all, Jesus has told us, blessed are the peacemakers. May God, by the power of his spirit, help us to reveal our hearts so that we might see the very heart of God and be the peacemakers he calls us to be. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you that you come and you expose us, you reveal our hearts and you show us that the anger is not outside of us, but it so easily grows within us. And so God, I pray that as we see your heart and your love for us and your anger that is at the right things in the right way, that we would be a people who then seek to bring peace, who learn the, what it means to be righteously anger, angry, and yet who also see that we have been reconciled in you. May that be what guides us and animates us and stirs our hearts as we seek to love you and love one another. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.